Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here, and welcome to Ocean Solutions, a Noise Lab podcast. I'm Dr. Morgan Reed Raven, a biogeochemist and a professor at the University of California in Santa Barbara. In this podcast, we are talking with inspirational individuals who are working on some of the largest issues of our time at the intersection of climate, ocean conservation, and human well-being. Today, we're going to dig into a topic that is very close to home for all of us along the west coast of North America, areas that were kelp forests, rich in all sorts of cool and quirky invertebrates just a decade ago, are now bare, coated in piles of unhappy-looking purple urchins. What can we do? Scientists with the state of California are on the case. guests today, both of whom are environmental scientists with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife on issues related to urchin barrens and ecosystem health off the coast. So Anthony Xiao comes from the Invertebrate Management Program, and he has a background in law and policy issues. Hi, Tony. Thanks for being here. Hi. Thank you for having us. And my second guest, two for the price of one, is James Ray, who is associated with the FinFish program with California Department of Fish and Wildlife and has more of a science background with a master's in aquatic ecology. Hi, James. Hello, thanks for having me. So he's the one with the British accent. You can keep them straight this way. Before we dive in, I wanted to highlight something that James brought to my attention, which is a fantastic looking book by Dr. Sarah Ray, which is called Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet which I am quite looking forward to reading and is probably relevant for many of us. Yeah, I, I think that anybody who's working in natural resources or any arena that involves potential declines of natural systems, then this is a good one to try and calm your nerves and think about sensible ways to forge ahead. Badly needed advice, I think. I'm excited to have both of you here today to learn more about urchin barrens because as a scuba diver myself in California, you cannot miss the fact that huge areas underwater are just overrun with these small purple spiky urchins and the kelp are just obviously struggling. It's really quite dramatic. Could one of you get us started by explaining a little bit about what this phenomenon is? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Urchin barrens are essentially a situation where kelp communities or seaweed communities are shifted to non-productive systems by intense grazing by urchins. Shifts from kelp forests or algal communities to non-productive barrens can really be triggered by anything that causes significant increases in urchin grazing. So that can be things like large recruitment events of urchins for one, or the depletion of various urchin predators, allowing urchin populations to increase. But also decreases in kelp drift as a food source can also trigger a behavioral shift in urchins that cause them to become more expansive and voracious feeders on algal communities. And so that in itself can sort of be a negative feedback loop that triggers a barren as well. In California, Urchin barrens have been documented, at least in Southern California, relatively consistently on variable scales from at least the 1950s, but certainly probably before that also. Whereas in Northern California and Central California, what we're seeing now with the extent of urchin barrens 
it's a lot more significant, particularly in the north in recent years, since about 2014, than we've seen previously. And it's having devastating effects for the kelp communities further north in the state. James just gave us a very good, very comprehensive overview of what's happened along our north coast for our state. One of the things I would like to add is that in our situation on the north coast, one of the most significant development in recent years was also this loss of predatory sea stars, the sun stars, due to a wasting disease, the cause of which we're still not entirely sure of. But we do know that it's likely not climate related because the wasting started during a cold water year before the phenomenon known as the warm blob actually hits our coast. The sea stars were dying from this disease. The kelp forest got hit by the warm blob and their productivity just crashed in those few years. And we have not really seen any significant recovery until recent years. Got it. So we're talking then, if we back up just a step, about an ecosystem that is kelp at the bottom, urchins that eat the kelp, sea stars that can eat the urchins, and then presumably bigger things that can eat the sea stars, yeah? Yes. There's an interesting finding that came out of a paper that's actually led by a team at UCSB this year discussing the dynamics of kelp barrens on the California coast. And what they found out is that it's very important for a kelp forest to have an entire suite of predators to maintain population control on urchins being recruited to a healthy kelp forest. And they could essentially pick them off before they grow too big and exert too much of a grazing pressure on the local kelp population. And in Southern California, historically, urchins' populations have been controlled by California sheepheads and California spiny lobster. And in Northern California, historically, they've been controlled by a combination of sunstar predatory pressure and sea otter predatory pressure. And in a lot of places in North Cal- Northern California right now, a lot of sun stars, if not most sun stars, have succumbed to the wasting disease and sea otters have been extirpated from their known habitat for decades now. And so the ecological setting was set up for this type of events to occur. So we have both what you would call top-down and bottom-up ecological issues that are driving these urchin populations to explode. Exactly. So how widespread is this? When you say it's up and down the California coast, is it just a particular depth? Is it really close to the coast? Is it patchy? What does it look like down there? Yeah, just in general, just sea urchin barrens can really be very variable in their extent. So they can be from sort of tens of meters in extent to thousands of kilometers in various places in the world. And so along the California coast right now, much of the north coast for the last several years, back to 2014, has been dominated by purple sea urchin barrens. And so, you know, that's 350 kilometers or so of coast that still has some very minimal patchy kelp and algal communities, but has shifted to being dominated by purple sea urchin barrens. In central California, the story is a little bit different. There are some pretty intense barrens uh, of variable scale, but the situation is much more patchy. And so you sort of see this mosaic currently of sea urchin barrens, and then still immediately adjacent to that healthy kelp forest, which raises some interesting questions in itself about the dynamics that are going on there. And so in Southern California, 
the situation, I suppose, is a little bit more similar to that of central California in that even though some of the barrens can be quite large, they are still patchy and certainly not as extensive um, as seen on the north coast. Urchin barrens have caused declines in kelp in both those regions over the course of time. But then on the north coast, as Tony mentioned, we've had what people reference as this perfect storm of drivers that have caused kelp declines, which is a marine heat wave coupled with a large recruitment event of purple urchins, coupled with declines in predators of purple urchins, which shifted the bull kelp forest ecosystem on the north coast to an almost entirely purple urchin barren. And one of the issues that remains now is even though oceanographic conditions, water temperature has sort of shifted away from that marine heat wave in the last few years, really. So it would be really amenable to kelp growth. Those very high densities of urchins still persist. And so in many locations, that's still suppressing recovery of kelp and algal communities in, in that area. If there's not a healthy kelp forest there, what are they eating? Yeah, it's a great question. They're eating whatever they can find. <laughs> and that includes the transect tapes of scuba divers, <laughs> pretty much anything. Yeah, not... that tape thing sounds like a story. <laughs> Did they eat your tape? They, they eat everybody's tape. It's <laughs> actually, anybody who like, dives in urchin barrens, they say, we put the transect tape down, we came back, it was eaten through by urchins. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> How is that food? I don't understand. They find it. It's new and they must smell it. And they're like, all right, I'm starving. This is probably food. Uh-huh. <laughs> so again, certainly in the deep intertidal areas, there still are some high quality algal communities. And so there are patches where the purple urchins are in shallow and they're still getting quite decent feed. But throughout much of the barrens, again, there, there is no algal community or kelp left and so the urchins are in fact in this starvation state like zombie urchin state in which they are very sort of low metabolic rates they're not feeding barely at all and they're just persisting but not reproductively viable for the most part and are sort of locked in this sort of stasis and any food that comes along they make short work of it. How long can they stay in stasis or are they eventually going to die off if this lasts for too many years? Yeah, that's a great question too. So urchin barrens can persist for many decades. And in you know lots of cases, th- there is some reproduction going on in these pockets of where some food sources exist. And so recruitment still seems to occur even in situations where expansive barrens are the sort of dominant condition. And so that in itself seems to have the capacity to maintain some of these, you know, urchin numbers in these barrens. But also urchins are very long-lived species. You know, red urchins can live for a hundred years or more. And purple urchins, it's suggested that they can live up to 70. But I think people think that they mostly live 20 or 30 years on average in the wild. But still, it's a very long-lived species. This seems so remarkable to me. I would have never guessed that an urchin could be 100 years old. I would have been like, I don't know, what's a, a rabbit? They're like rabbits of the sea. I would have been like three years, maybe. <laughs> yes, slow and cold, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I don't want to suggest necessarily that urchins in barren conditions are living that long, but they can persist for some time. And so urchin barrens themselves can last for decades, uh, unless some 
other driving force shifts those densities of urchins. And that can be things like disease outbreaks in the urchin population, which can reduce the numbers and then potentially allow kelp recovery after that. Or physical factors like big storm events can clear out large sections of the coast uh, of urchins and allow a kelp response in a similar way once the grazing pressure is reduced. If you remove urchins from an area, how do they come back? Do they release their young into the water and let them colonize? Do they actually walk around? Specifically related to the barrens themselves, if you clear an area of urchins, depending on the timescales that you're talking about, they can recolonize those areas through a couple of mechanisms. The most short-term and common one is just incursion through animals simply walking into your site and moving from adjacent reef into the area that you've cleared. And that happens quite frequently. And so in restoration strategies and management strategies, ideally you're thinking about ways that if you're going to invest time and energy into removing urchins, you're thinking about ways of doing that where you select the site to maximize your capacity to defend it and minimize the routes with which urchins can come back into that site. But in addition to that, there are urchins reproducing and putting larval urchins into the water up and down the coast. So yeah, both of those mechanisms can work. What does an urchin look like when it's walking? Does it like hover like a sea star? Does it like hop along? Does it have one big foot or like many, many feet? What's under there? So an urchin basically looks like, it looks like a ball of spikes. And then you'll see these little tube feet that look a little like little tentacles sticking out of them. And those are the apparatus that they use to both catch food and also to move around. Like the sea star, it's also an echinoderm. So they do move like sea stars and you can see them just slowly creeping using their tube feet along the bottom when they move. So you're saying they have feet like all over themselves or is it just yeah. like on the bottom like a sea star? They have tube feet all over their bodies. Do they like roll and tumble when they... Not that we know <laughs> of. Though, though the interesting thing is some people, including our colleagues, believe that another echinoderm, sea cucumber, might potentially do that when they move long distance. So you can imagine little thing of sea cucumbers just rolling on the seafloor to uh, the great beyond. But Just like doing a barrel roll? And <laughs> I, I guess so. I, I have not seen any definitive evidence, but it has been proposed. Well, yeah. I hope that's true. <laughs> me too. Me. Under, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily an active form of movement, but urchins certainly sort of tumbleweed along if they find themselves in, you know, severe wave conditions or current conditions. And I think it's been well documented that they can end up in locations from other locations at the whims of water force by that mechanism, just by tumbleweeding around. But I don't think it's typically by choice. <laughs> mm -hmm. Got it. Let's talk just a little bit more about the causes here. We've mentioned a lot of different things that have contributed to these in both Northern and Southern California. Why does warm water support urchin barrens? What's the connection? It's not so much that it supports the urchin barren in so much as it reduces kelp growth by reducing the amount of nutrients available to kelp in water. That's absolutely right. And so that can have two effects essentially. So one, reduction of density in kelp can have implications for grazer pressure on the remainder of the kelp. But in addition to that, 
urchins actually don't preferentially feed on live kelp. They quote unquote prefer to feed on drift kelp. So kelp that's detached from the kelp forest and the understory algal community and that's broken loose and ended up on the substrate. Mm-hmm. Typically, urchins much prefer to hunker down in cracks and crevices and wait for kelp drift to come to them. And that's when they feed on it. And that's their preferred strategy. However, if there's a reduction in that food source, urchins have this very well documented behavioral shift, whereby if they start to be depleted of food, they actually shift behavior from this sort of hunker down strategy And then they start actively in large numbers coming out of these locations and then actively looking for food. And that is really sort of the impetus for many urchin barrens where large numbers of urchins have had food sources reduced for various reasons. And then they just essentially go on the rampage looking for food and start mowing down understory kelp community, algal communities, and then kelp forests through that mechanism. Okay, so there's almost like a threshold in this system where all of a sudden your urchins reach a certain level of stress and then they go out and exert a much larger stress on the surrounding ecosystem. That's exactly right. Yeah, and as we lose the kelp, we also lose the physical structure of these kelp forests. So we then in turn lose the higher trophic level predators that we need to control these urchin growth. So it's definitely a kind of a vicious cycle in the ecological sense. So those kelp are also providing really important habitats for your spiny lobsters and other organisms like that? Yes, exactly. Is there a direct connection between warmer water and what's happening with starfish? Not that we know of. As we mentioned earlier, we started seeing this wasting disease before the ridiculously resilient ridge form, before the warm blob actually formed off northeastern Pacific. So we don't think that the two are directly connected, though the nature of these issues, there perhaps could be. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. Is it a virus? Maybe, maybe not. There are labs along the coast that have worked on this issue. They may still be. But as of now, we don't have any definitive answers yet. So what can be done about the starfish? Is there a vaccine for starfish or are people trying to identify more resilient starfish that they could potentially return to the wild? So there are a couple of entities right now. The Nature Conservancy in collaboration with the University of Washington are really the leaders in this arena at the moment. Firstly, it's really just been documented sort of the absence of Pycnopodia sea stars throughout the north and central coasts. And when you say absence, do you really mean absence? Yes. And and I I suppose I'm sort of going back and forth here between talking about California and the West Coast. But to clarify, the declines in Pycnopodia have been very significant throughout the entire West Coast. There are still some what seem like remnant numbers of Pycnopodia sea stars in northern Washington on the Washington coast. But throughout Oregon and northern California and much of the rest of California, they're essentially functionally extinct. And so several folks, including the University of Washington folks and Oregon State University folks in collaboration with TNC have been doing sort of great work, firstly, documenting that. And then secondarily, starting to fund various lines of study that are looking at potentially being able to raise Pycnopodia sea stars via aquaculture. And the long term 
thoughts here are that, that there may be some kind of feasible reintroduction sometime down the line. However, everybody recognizes that there's a lot of hard work to do between now and then and a lot of science that needs to be investigated, you know, notwithstanding all of the rest of the technical issues about reintroductions. As far as we know right now, the syndrome, the C-star wasting syndrome is still present in the ambient environment mm -hmm. off the California coast. And so it obviously makes no sense to reintroduce a species that's vulnerable to some kind of disease if the disease is still present in the environment. And so I'm not entirely sure about research along the lines of inoculating them. <laughs> I'm sure it's not impossible. Okay, so maybe one of the things we can do is deal with the sea star population, maybe reintroduce them at some point in the future. But you guys are working on a different approach to addressing urchin barons. What is your preferred piece of the solution? Yeah, so the main reason that brought James and I together to collaborate on this work is actually we're trying to get a regulation adopted that allows recreational divers, scuba divers like yourself, to go up to Monterey or Mendocino County at two specific test sites to help what's essentially calling sea urchins underwater. And what our hope is, is to create these small kelp reserves, essentially, that can provide the necessary spore bank to um, repopulate the entire North Coast and Central Coast when conditions are favorable, both from like a trophic perspective or an environmental perspective. Culling urchins with divers, what exactly does that mean? So correct me if I'm wrong, James, but my understanding is that right now the most efficient way that divers have developed to call urchins on the water is to take a screwdriver and basically poke a hole in their test, their skeleton. You and just stab them? We just stab oh. them and, and hopefully they bleed out. Okay, so the vision is you have a bunch of recreational divers just all equipped with screwdrivers and along the way they just let's call it poke. I don't know. Is that better? They, <laughs> they screwdriver the urchins as they go along. And theoretically, then those urchins, they die. And that allows the kelp potentially to regrow in that area. Is that right? That's yeah. my understanding. Have you ever tried to do this yourself? Have either of you done this before? No, I, I have not done it yet. Okay. But I'm sure it's coming. But <laughs> I don't, have you, Tony? Uh, no. <laughs> So, I mean, what you said there, just to take a step back, is, is essentially right. There's quite a bit of research that shows if you can reduce grazing pressure by urchins in these barrens, then if ocean conditions are sufficient to promote kelp growth at the same time, by reducing those densities of urchins, reducing that um, grazing pressure, you can get some kelp and algal community regrowth. And so that's sort of the, the premise of this work. In California, we have uh, really engaged citizenry when it comes to environmental issues, particularly associated with the ocean. And recreational divers up and down the coast have really embraced this idea. This has actually been proposed by members of the public. We are in the process of reviewing that proposal and aligning ourselves with parts of it that we think are appropriate and might work. In this case, what we think is a, a feasible approach is this test approach at these two locations on the north coast and on the south coast where recreational divers are allowed to essentially have unlimited take of urchins in those two different locations. And what that really means is, as Tony noted, you can use hand tools and that will mean that divers underneath the water can kill those urchins in place. 
But it's not, you know, there's a couple of things that aren't lost on us here. And one of those things is the idea that there may be some kind of negative consequences from this action. And so we are teaming up with our colleagues at Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary and then colleagues at Sea Grant as well to come up with some monitoring strategies around this method of grazer pressure reduction. And so we're hoping to be able to assess how effective this method might be in terms of bringing kelp back, but also get a sense of potential consequences of this method if they exist for either the reef or other species. Yeah. Well, I love how you mentioned that you have this community of divers and locals and Californians who have noticed that this is a problem and who are very invested in wanting to have these ecosystems that they enjoy for their recreation, that they can be engaged in this kind of work. That's a really cool approach. You also mentioned though, that it actually came from the public as an original idea. What did that look like? Yeah, so any citizen of California can actually petition the state government, specifically to the California Fish and Game Commission, which is appointed by the governor to um, approve or in some cases disapprove regulations regarding take of fish and other wildlife. And what happened here, it was actually a very avid diver from up north came to the Fish Again Commission with a formal petition and the commissioners saw enough merit in his proposal and referred it to us, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, which is the administrative agency with the scientific staff and enforcement staff to iron out and execute the details of these projects. Were any of these petitions to actually take or collect the urchins? Were other alternatives to just smashing them in place? I mean, initially, I suppose the earliest elements of this process started in 2018, when there were actually petitions brought to the commission to increase the bag limit of urchins to allow people to remove them as you might do if you were harvesting them. And so that was the sort of initial proposal. And that was approved by the commission. And in essence, in Mendocino, Sonoma and Humboldt counties, where the impact of the urchin barrens was considered the greatest. The bag limit for recreational harvesters, urchins went from 35 urchin to 40 gallons of urchin per per day. And so there was a lot of initial interest in that. But as it turns out, it's really logistically difficult (laughs) to remove 40 gallons of urchin per person per day from any given location and it requires really well organized and orchestrated events boat support for the divers and so on and so forth and so even though there was an initial flurry of activity around that method it didn't take long for it to go by the wayside because it was just so difficult to do what would you do with 40 gallons of urchin is that a good thing? Do I want 40 gallons of urchin? Well, it depends on what if you've got a big garden or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So lots of people utilize that many urchins as a, a soil amendment, essentially, as compost. That is what primarily people were doing with that. But again, the end use of the urchins was the least of the problem, <laughs> I think. Right. Yeah, my impression of all those efforts is, we managed to remove generally in the hundreds of thousands max. I think the highest 
number was 200,000 urchins. But even a small area like Casper Cove, there could potentially be northward of a million urchins. Oof. Requiring people to take urchins out of the water is just requires a level of logistics that we think is a little too optimistic for recreational divers and the equipments available to them. That makes sense. But people also intentionally farm urchins, right? Yeah, correct. The petitions that we're talking about right now for recreational divers to go in and try and remove or reduce urchin grazer pressure. But red urchins are a commercial commodity, so they're marketed commercially in California. However, purple urchins, which are the primary issue with regard to urchin barrens and kelp loss have never really been a significant marketable product. And so right now, even though there's millions and millions of urchins along the coast, urchins are generally marketed for food because of the uni. It means the purple urchins along the coast are unmarketable for food resources. And so one avenue is to figure out other ways to market those urchin that are essentially empty on the reef. There is the potential for harvesting those purple urchins and then sending them to aquaculture facilities where they can be essentially fed up on various feed sources to get them to marketable quality in terms of uni content. Moss Landing Marine Lab is experimenting with that process, as well as a private company called Urchinomics, which is currently based in Bodega Bay. Let's talk a little bit more about the process of creating a policy and turning it into reality where you could actually impact urchin populations. What do you do to make this policy happen? My main job at the department is actually, I help provide policy and regulatory support for the rest of my team on the Invertebrate Project and other teams, like in this case, I'm collaborating with James. And what generally happens in an ideal world is when we have a management issue, like urchin barrens on the North Coast, ideally we should be approaching our stakeholders and talk to them about potential solutions and work out, okay, what are our plans and our strategies and to execute these strategies, do we need to make changes to regulations? And what is the timeline and the necessary data that we need to get those regulations adopted? And once we have those details ironed out, then we will present our findings to our upper level managers and to our fish and game commissioners and their staff. We will run through those regulatory processes. And upon adoptions, we keep collecting data, perform adaptive management as we plan them and adjust our adaptation strategy as time persists. Are you set up then with teams that are issue specific? What is the structure like in your department? The Department of Fish and Wildlife is divided into many components. One type of component is called a region. A region is basically in charge of the scientific and policy work of a specific geographic area. James and I belong to the marine region, and our work basically encompassed the entire California coast. Our regional manager is actually also based here in Santa Barbara, and underneath him are several teams of scientists that are in charge of the scientific work and policy work. These are the substantive subject-specific teams. I belong to the invertebrate management program. There are about 20 of us, give or take, and we are responsible for all the invertebrate fisheries-related issues along the coast. And James here belongs to the state-managed finfish 
project, which also encompasses kelp and aquaculture work. And I believe, James, your team is about 20 people or so too, right? Yeah, that's correct. And、uh, yeah, we have several others. We have another team that's dedicated to the management of highly migratory species and pelagic species. And we have another team dedicated to ground fish and salmon. Those two teams work very closely with the federal government and participate and represent our state's interest in the Pacific Fishery Management Council that convenes about once every two months. And that's where the federal government. Us, Oregon, and Washington, and Idaho, actually, because of salmon, where representatives all convene to figure out how to manage our jointly shared stocks. Coordination between the West Coast states does seem like it would be pretty important to make this effective. Yes, ocean does not have boundaries, but our governments and our management delineations do. So we have to figure out a way to make it work.、Mm-hmm. So, besides petitions from the public, do you also get to come up with your own policy ideas? We do, but actually, that's actually a very interesting question, Morgan. Is you know what is the role of us as civil servants in a democracy? Because if let's say this is like a real monarchy, presumably a king or queen's advisor can just unilaterally decide what the policy direction of the state is. But for us, James and I, we're civil servants, so there's a limit to. What we can do in terms of making our professional decisions, and ultimately, at least, I believe that our job in an ideal world is to get people together and facilitate dialogues and help develop policy solutions that are democratic and fair, but also effective. What is your relationship with the legislature? Do you have to follow directions from them as well? Yes. So oftentimes we have or、we'll、receive mandates. From the legislature, who are also elected by the people, so they're representatives of the people, and they do adopt statutes, laws that require us to look at specific management issues. One that I can think of off the top of my head is the recent increase in entanglement of protected whales in one of our fisheries, and in that instance, we did get legislative statute that came down to us and gave us. A goal and a deadline to develop management strategies and responses. So, in terms of what you're doing with your day, it sounds like it's a lot of coordinating with having meetings with different stakeholders, meeting with your、mm-hmm. team. What other sort of activities do you normally do? Well, I also spend a lot of time staring at my ceiling, thinking about how to、um, consolidate and integrate information.、Um, <laughs> I do miss the days when I could go out on boats and deploy rosettes, but fortunately or unfortunately, I spend my life、um, in front of a computer screen now.、Mm-hmm. James, is your day-to-day pretty similar, or major differences? I'd say it was a bit more mixed. <laughs> I think my role falls into two camps, and one of those. Which I've been spending much of the last year on is helping to implement various restoration strategies for kelp on the ground. One of those projects or strategies that we're working on is coming up with a project to collaborate with various state partners like the Ocean Protection Council and the nonprofit organization ReefCheck California and commercial urchin divers on the North Coast to reduce urchin densities. Various locations and see if we can get some kelp recovery. Another project is this 
regulatory package, working with the recreational community to try and get some of their ambitions on the ground in terms of kelp restoration. So really talking with folks in communities, talking with scientists, talking with partners to try and actually develop a tangible project that's going to go on the ground and then be monitored. That does involve getting out on site and hopefully increasingly doing field work associated with those projects. And then the flip side of the coin is trying to build relationships with academics and NGOs and federal and other state partners to think about various strategies for kelp management that might be centered around either restoration or kelp harvest management, because kelp itself is a harvested species in many places throughout the world, including California. So that side of it is more planning and coordination. But either way, one of the most enjoyable parts of my job is I get to spend a lot of time with clever people who are thinking about really interesting issues to do with marine ecosystems and marine management. I am constantly learning a lot of things that I didn't know, and, and, and that's good. Fantastic. Is that your favorite aspect of the job? Yeah, I mean, I enjoy it very much. I think a lot of biologists get into the field because they like poking around at stuff and being in the field. That's a massive aspect of the job that I just thoroughly enjoy. I enjoy, like I said, collaborating with smart people who can teach me a bunch of things. But also, as Tony mentioned earlier, we are working for the state civil servants. And I actually take seriously and really enjoy the service aspect of my job because, you know, I do believe as the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, we're trustees of various natural resources for the people of California. And so I don't take that lightly in how I deal with the responsibilities of my job and deal with the public and their opinions about resources and various other stakeholder groups. Communication with various groups can sometimes be trying and complicated because we don't always want the same thing. But at the end of the day, it's always very rewarding yeah, and I think that's a very important for anyone looking to working for government management agency is it, it can be really awesome because a lot of work you do have an immediate impact. And when things work out, you're really helping the environment, you're really helping vulnerable species, and you're really helping the public's enjoyment, cultural heritage, and people's livelihood. But what makes it awesome can also sometimes make it intense because when things don't turn on as well, whether through our own work or through exigent circumstances, it can be very intense because people's livelihood are on the line. Vulnerable species, the ecosystem, they are on the line. Mm-hmm. It's a great power and great responsibility kind of opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. On some level, it's got to be great though to be in a position where you can put your hands in there and actually make changes. I wouldn't dismiss the absolute importance of non-government representatives and also researchers like yourselves, because everyone has an important role to play in the system. And when things are working efficiently, effectively, it is a very good feeling to have Mm -hmm. going through these processes. So how did you get into this field? Did you always know you wanted to work on ocean conservation issues? Not necessarily policy at first. I've always liked the ocean as a kid in terms of like how you can never see the end of it, just the overall expensiveness of it. You know, I remember as a kid, my family would go to the Monterey Aquarium 
And then I'll just stand in front of the pelagic tank and stare at it for like an hour. <laughs> but I became very interested in policy and just how all-encompassing it is, probably in college. And at that time, one of my TAs, he suggested that, hey, you know, Tony, if you're interested in policy, instead of going to grad school and get a PhD, you know, go to law school, then get a master's. You spend the exact number of years and you have more bandwidth to cover the various aspects of policy work. Mm -hmm. And so that's essentially what I did. And I got into the state service after I graduated from grad school. What did you study for your master's? So I went to the Scripps Institution in San Diego. They have an interdisciplinary master's degree. And there I mostly studied physical oceanography and how to apply them to the management context. Got it. And, and you did a law degree after that. No, I did a law degree before Oh, the other that. way around. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I got a law degree first. And then after I graduated, I took my bar exam and then I started my master's. And while I was getting my master's, I was also working for a think tank based on DC. And after that, I got into the state fellowship. And What's that? If, so if you have any students that's really interested in this, they'd be happy to know that after graduate school, California has, and every state does actually have this fellowship program through their state sea grant programs. And also the federal government has a similar counterpart as well, where they take recently graduated masters and PhDs and they fit them to an agency that's related to ocean management. And the fellows basically pay that by the state for a year where they get a taste of what's it like working on policy issues for a government agency. And yeah, for me, after I finished my fellowship, you know, James and the rest of the department figure, oh, you know, he's cool. We'll keep him. And so <laughs> the rest was history. I've been working for the department ever since. That sounds like a really important program to know about. It's wonderful that this exists. So yeah, how would I Google that program? you will Google California Sea Grant Fellowship. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, James? What's your path to here? When I was a kid, I grew up in rural central England, which is as far away from the coast as you can get in England. But even that being so, it's not very far. <laughs> from American standards. Yeah, um, fair. But however, I was always that kid who just was spending time outside all the time with bugs and fish and birds and whatever you can imagine. And so I always knew from a very early age that whatever I was going to do, it was going to involve species and ecosystems and thinking about them and being outside. My undergraduate degree was sort of a broad-based interdisciplinary degree in environmental science. And then my graduate degree is in aquatic ecology, which was actually primarily focused in freshwater systems but through the course of my career which is about I would say 17 years now in research and management of natural resources I crept closer and closer to the marine environment so I worked for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife I worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service up in Alaska and then since I've been in California I've been with the marine region initially started in bay and estuary systems and regulatory management around aquaculture, but transitioned recently to kelp restoration specifically. I've always felt very comfortable in resource management agencies, 
And one of the primary reasons for that is I think that to the extent that this is possible anywhere, you have the opportunities to do monitoring and research as well as be involved with various regulatory components. And that can be really quite satisfying. Cool. Generally speaking, if you start working with one state agency, is it pretty common or simple to move between agencies and states? Or are states pretty much within their own towers? Yeah, they are. States are independent and have their own rules for hiring within their own state government agencies. I happen to move around quite a bit over the last few years because my wife, who is now a professor at Humboldt State University, was getting her PhD and then she took her first assignment as an assistant professor. And on the West Coast, at least, there are more resource agency opportunities than professorships (laughs) in universities (laughs) on the West Coast. So, you know, that provided some guidance for us. But yeah, each of those federal entities and state entities, they, they operate independently. Got it. And I hear she's got a great new book called The Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. (laughs) It'll save you. Fantastic. Okay, last question for each of you. If somebody is really inspired by all of this, and this sounds like something that they would like to do in their life or career, what advice would you give them? You want to go first, Tony? (laughs) Yeah, so I think the most important thing is you do have to be passionate about the environment, not just the natural environment, but also the human environment and our society's well-being. And because there are a lot of highly charged and sometimes political issues that we deal with in terms of how to really enter into this field as, let's say, a college student, I would say don't just take classes in biology and physics and chemistry, but go out there and take classes in international relations, in you know programming, in law, in society. I think having an interdisciplinary mindset is incredibly invaluable to policymaking because policymaking is inherently the take and choose of different important things. And the best way to really help getting at a set of policy that's cohesive, that is making the right sacrifices for the right gains. It's important to really understand the details of all the um, factors behind those sacrifices and gains. And that's where different disciplines can really help. Absolutely. What proportion of people that you work with have some sort of law background? Well, the attorneys at uh, the Office of General Counsel do. Actually, there are many wonderful attorneys or people of legal background who currently work for the various non-government organizations like, you know, TNC, like CBD and NRDC that have legal background too. Cool. I, I'd say that two things. There's there's a lot of room in natural resource management and research for all sorts of different strengths and approaches. And so I think if folks who want to get into various aspects of this work really need to figure out what makes them happy and what they enjoy the most and where they think they would be most useful. Because I don't think there's a need necessarily to sort of shoehorn yourself into a certain type or a certain strategy to get work in this arena. So that's the first thing. And then some of the things Tony was referencing too, I think that having a foundation and a good understanding of biological systems and what have you is, of course, critical for this type of work. But much of the work we do is with people. It's with stakeholders. It's with private citizens. It's with 
research entities, it's with non-governmental entities, it's with all sorts of community groups. And being able to communicate with various folks through writing and just through discussions and being able to listen and being able to understand people's perspectives without wanting necessarily to enforce your own perspective into the conversation is super critical. Communication is everything I would say, and it doesn't matter how smart of a biologist you are. If you can't listen to people and can't convey your thoughts to them equally so, then you know, you're dead in the water. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much to both of you for taking the time to talk to me today. I really value your expertise on this. I feel much more informed about what's going on in the urchin barrens. And I'm really excited to hear that there are some of these activities in process, things that maybe I could even go do with a screwdriver to help with this problem. So thanks so much for your work on this. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. This has been awesome. Thanks for being here. And thanks as always to Eleanor Duran and the Dust on the Radio for our theme song, One Way Trip to Mars. We're rounding out our exploration of ocean solutions in the worlds of policy, international law, local activism, climate modeling, engineering, and more. But next week, we'll be bringing it home to geoscience research, asking how rocks that record the past can tell us about Earth's present and future with Dr. Raquel Bryant of Texas A&M. See you there.